Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen, your host for today's episode. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Wu Jianming about his new book, Rival Partners, How Taiwanese Entrepreneurs and Guangdong Officials Forged the China Development Model. This book was translated by Stacy Mosher and published by Harvard University Press in 2022. Taiwan has been depicted as an island facing the incessant threat of forcible unification with the People's Republic of China. Why, then, has Taiwan spent more than three decades pouring capital and talent into China? In this award-winning book, Wu Jianming follows the development of Taiwanese enterprises in China over 25 years and provides fresh insights. The geopolitical shift in Asia beginning in the 1970s and the global restructuring of value chains since the 1980s created strong incentives for Taiwanese entrepreneurs to rush into China despite high political risks and insecure property rights. Taiwanese investment, in conjunction with Hong Kong capital, led the foundation of the world's factory to flourish in the southern province of Guangdong. But official Chinese narratives play down Taiwan's vital contribution. It is hard to imagine the Guangdong model without Taiwanese investment. And without the Guangdong model, China's rise could not have occurred. Going beyond the received wisdom of the China miracle and the Taiwan factor, Wu delineates how Taiwanese business people, with the cooperation of local officials, ushered global capitalism into China. By partnering with its political arch-rival, Taiwan has benefited enormously, while helping to cultivate an economic superpower that increasingly exerts its influence around the world. All right, so this is a brief introduction about the book, and now let's hear it from the author. Dr. Wu, welcome to the show. Thank you, Li Ping. Uh, this is Wu Jiemin. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm from Academia Seneca Sociology Department. Um, my research interests include political economy, international relations, uh, political sociology, and the Taiwan democracy, Taiwan civil society, and the social movement, and uh, uh, not least importantly, um, China studies. I published several books about Taiwan, uh, China, and uh, cross-trade relations, including uh, the one we are going to talk about, the rival partners. All right. And so in that's... addition, <laughs> and in addition, I, I forgot to mention it. I published a collection of poems about uh, seven, eight years ago. That's uh, the, the poems I wrote about twenty years, uh, ten years ago. 
Oh, wow. Well, we have a scholar and poet here. Um, so uh, thank you for letting us know. So uh, with this uh, introduction, and now before we get into the book itself, we want to hear a little bit more about how did you start this project, uh, inspiration or anything that uh, get you started? Okay, sure. Um... This is quite a long process of research and writing. I, I started my project when I went to uh, Columbia University, New York City to, uh, to study for my PhD degree. That is way back in 1990. And I think the timing is quite critical. We know that the year before, uh, there was a, a big, massive protest against the Communist Party, uh, the Tiananmen uh, student movement, and uh, uh, in the end, the government, the CCP, decided to crack down the movement, and that caused a, a massacre. So that year is, uh, is a shock to the world, and especially to Taiwan. And at that time, I was a graduate student at uh, uh, Taiwan Daoshe National Taiwan University uh, Political Science, Science Department. And also later in that year, uh, we witnessed the fall of the Berlin Berlin Wall, and that uh, initiated the uh, ongoing collapse of the Soviet Union Empire. So, so my interest, so my interest in the post-socialist tradition, began at that time. So that is the background of my 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 project, and. Uh, um, there's another thing that I, I want to share with the audience that when I went to Colombia, uh, the very first class I took is with uh, Professor Andrew Nason. Uh, Nason is, is a very famous uh, China scholar, and he specializes in human rights and Chinese democracy. And I found his class, uh, his class is introductory class for graduate students. Uh, it's called uh, Chinese politics, and I found it very intriguing to me. And I, I think, uh, I think I, 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 I fell in love with the, you know, you know the, the modern China studies, uh, mostly because of my advisor Andrew Mason, and he is a very good lecturer in, in Chinese politics. He used very simple language to explain profound theories. So I. So I learned a lot from him. That's why I, I, I delved into the China studies and started this project. All right. Thank you for sharing with us the starting point of this project and also the context of the starting point as well. So for this book about the Taiwanese investment in the People's Republic of China, so first of all, uh, maybe we can provide some context for the readers, for the audience as well. So can you tell us a little bit about this uh, cross-strait antagonism and also connections that can help us understand about uh, our conversation um, uh, just in a minute? Yeah, sure. You know, uh, the, the, the puzzle for us is that, you know, because we know that Taiwan has been in, uh, in political antagonism with, with, with mainland China, I know why... Why are so many Taiwanese business people rush into China uh, to do business there? So this creates a basic uh, riddle for us, you know, because politically we are 
of two distinct countries in kind of uh, opposition. But how could the, the business people uh, could get together across straight? So that is a basic uh, point of departure uh, for my project. And you know, Taiwan wants autonomy and wants uh, uh, independence and freedom uh, from China. And China always says that uh, Taiwan is a renegade province of China and Taiwan will be unified uh, by, by China, uh, no matter it's peacefully or you know, forcefully. So why, why that happened uh, is a very important point of departure for us. Um, so, the, the I try to explain this uh, this puzzle uh, in my book, and I think this is most in, one of the most important contribution of my book is that how China use you know social connections, political connections, and uh, uh, use the opening up policy to uh, welcome the foreign capital, and uh, in 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 this category of foreign capital. Taiwanese uh, businessman, uh, the so-called Taishang. Taishang becomes the most important element in this very early development of Chinese opening up to the global capitalism. So that is the main theme of my, my book. All right, and as you mentioned, uh, as China uh, opening up to foreign capital and then more and more Taiwanese investment and Taishang, uh, invest and do business there. But uh, what does it look like before China opening up to foreign capital? So uh, can you tell us a little bit about China's economic transformation, especially from state socialism and later on to capitalism or a capitalism with socialistic characteristics? Yeah, you know, it is not quite a natural for a state socialist system to transform into a capitalist one. So that pass, you know, that pass uh, could be very difficult and, and, and bumpy. And actually, we met with such condition in China. We know that China had been ruled by the Mao, by the Mao Zedong regime for uh, three decades. But so when Deng Xiaoping, you know, uh, regained his power in the late 1970s, there, there was several things happened uh, at the same time. Uh, for the first, you know, the U.S. wants to change its global strategy it, because that is during the second period of the Cold War. And US, the U.S. government tried to, uh, you know, uh, absorb or, or to coordinate with China and uh, make China a friendly partner in order to uh, contain Soviet Union empire. So in the very beginning, um, it's, it happened very early. We know that China was uh, allowed into the UN, UN system in 1971. And, and the next year, the, the then American President Nixon uh, went to China and talked to Mao Zedong, talked to the Premier Zhou Enlai, and they signed the Shanghai communique and paving the, you know, the, the subsequent normalization of the two countries. So, in, in that long process uh, up to the opening up of China, U.S. has been doing something, trying to open the, the doors of China, okay? So the U.S. Uh, gradually you know, invite uh, China to, uh, to engage in export economy, 
uh, since the late 70s uh, and the early uh, seven uh, late 70s and early 80s and and right 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 about this time Deng Xiaoping uh, regained his power and took the office so Deng can uh, mobilize the system into uh, one that is more friendly to the global capitalism system but but that kind of thing didn't happen naturally because the, the whole system the whole Chinese system is still you know kind of trapped in the old system of socialism so so then and his uh, lieutenants had to uh, persuade the central and the local leaders to guarantee them that we are going to move forward to market economy they, they don't mention the term capitalism they say this is to uh, invigorate in, 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 uh, to active our dormant economy and this is not to overthrow our uh, socialist system. So Deng Xiaoping proposed uh, four cardinal uh, principles to, to, to give guarantees to the cadres that we are not going to you know, get away with our system and we are not you know, uh, forego our power. We are still the Communist Party, we are still you know, pursuing the socialist goals. But for the moment, for our country to to better and, and more quickly develop, we have to we have to introduce the Western skills, Western capital into our country. So that process, uh, you know, you know, happened, and it endured about uh, uh, three four years. And in that process, you know, there's some purge. Uh, there are some purge case, uh, cases in the party and in local uh, society and local government. But, but you know, eventually, uh, Deng and his generation persuaded the whole party and the whole country that we are going to make a part of our people to become rich first. So they choose Guangdong to, to become the first site for such experiment. Yeah, so opening up and starting from uh, Guangdong, as uh, Dr. Wu mentioned in this economic development, so opening up to foreign uh, capital, uh, the, the context is the changing geopolitical landscape. And also, as you mentioned, the emphasis on still a socialist vision for uh, China. So uh, with that, and uh, now we are thinking about the transition and also the opening up and now focused on uh, Guangdong as a location to start with. So how did the global level now link up to the local level, especially during the process of China's transition? And how does uh, Taiwan play in this, especially Taiwanese capital and also Taiwanese business people? First question are critical uh, for us, you know. Uh, for the first question, how did the global level link up with the local level in the process? Yeah, there's uh, actually there's kind of vacuum between the two levels, right? You know, uh, China has been uh, pursuing kind of autarky. Autarky means that the self-sufficient uh, sufficiency policy that China can rely on itself. And China, you know, there to uh, to uh, confront two empires, you know, to confront Soviet Union and the uh, United States at the same time. So China is kind of quite a secluded country, uh, if you will. Uh, so to link up China with, uh, with, with, with outside world, 
is not a, a very easy thing at that time. So the most important element that the Chinese government has to introduce is try to uh, try to court the foreign capital into China. And what kind of foreign capital that, that, that China needed at that time is the foreign direct investments, which it's uh, in shorthand, it's uh, FDI. Uh, and what kind of FDI? You know, it's not uh, it's not like Intel. It's not like Samsung. You know, because at that time China's uh, production capability is still quite low. Although China has has uh, has extensive uh, has very ample labor supply and with quite a good quality, but China still you know has to advance its uh, manufacturing uh, capability. So in the very first step. That that um, the industry that China needs is the export processing uh, firms. Okay, say like uh, the, the the companies from Taiwan, South Korea, Hong Kong, or Singapore, and uh, uh, take time for example, um, the the shoes making, the footwear industry or bicycle industry are quite fit to to the to the current need of, ch- of the Chinese economy. Okay, so at that time, it is the FDI, especially the Hong Kong and Taiwan capital, and then South Korea and and, and Singapore. This sector are rushed into China to link up the local economy with the global level. So the next question is, uh, what role did Taiwanese capital and Taishan play in this? Uh, in one word. It's the role of Taiwan is uh, is in the middleman, okay. By middleman, I I mean that you know Taiwanese have uh, capital, have skills and organization skills for production, and uh, uh, access to the Western markets. You know, the in in uh, twenty thirty years ago, before this company went to China, there there were the four tigers or four little. Uh, for little tigers in, in Asia, and they gain the markets of the American uh, economy, okay? The, um, the, the U.S. government opened up the markets for the little tigers, so the Asian tigers can grow uh, very quickly. Then 30 years later, this kind of, this pattern of development uh, was introduced into China, okay? So who are going to be the middleman? And Taishan is one of the most important uh, a key person in this process. Right. As you mentioned, the uh, critical position, right, to sort of as a middleman and to also introduce and provide resources, as you mentioned, a capital investment, but also different kind of skills, production skills, organization skills, but also networks as well. For example, like access to the Western markets as well, to sort of uh, be able to, as you mentioned, link the global to the uh, uh, local production uh, level. So uh, with this, and now we hear that Taiwan and also Taiwanese uh, capital, Taiwanese businessmen have this uh, critical role in this process. Now I want to uh, ask one more question that earlier we mentioned briefly, that's Guangdong. And in your book, especially chapter two, you have this great analysis and introduction about the Guangdong model. So can you tell us about the Guangdong model and especially how did it get started and then the development over the past 
30 years. All right. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Guangdong province, especially the coastal Guangdong area, the Pearl River Delta area uh, specifically, was chosen by the center to be the harbinger for experiment. You know, this is uh, this 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 zone is designated as a new place for experiment uh, how to engage with the, the foreigners, and that turned out to be a big big success. You know, almost unexpected by the center in the very beginning. So, in retrospect, we are going to uh, to to think uh, what are the key elements of the Guangdong model, and I will cite several items. Uh, the first one is the Guangdong model uh, becomes reality in the beginning because you know this place is open up for foreign capital. Okay, without foreign capital, without Hong Kong, and especially in my in this case, I argue for the importance of Taiwan. Taiwan capital uh, is critical to the to the early development of Guangdong model. Okay, that's for one. The second one is that at that time, uh, Guangdong province itself, in the very beginning, still has a, a large surplus labor with quite uh, good quality. So Guangdong can uh, supply the uh, relatively inexpensive labor uh, to the foreign companies. Okay, but that that uh, that reserve of labor exhausted quite quickly. So in about two or three years. Guangdong government has to usher in labor from other inland provinces, such as Sichuan, Hunan, Hubei, Henan. So in this case, Guangdong local governments become uh, a middleman themselves, okay? They introduce the migrant workers domestically into the the industrial zone in Guangdong province. So so the second key element is is low-cost labor. And the third one is that the Guangdong model, because it's focused on export processing, they imported the goods, intermediate goods from abroad, and then assemble the goods into uh, the finished goods, like like a TV set, like uh, uh, bicycles, uh, like toys, garments. Uh, All those items were re-exported to the global market. So Guangdong model can help China to earn a lot of foreign exchange. And with this huge foreign exchange accumulated day and day, year after year, China, local government, and of course the central government can secure a large amount of foreign capital and foreign exchange. So with this massive uh, US dollars, this, this massive uh, foreign exchange, the Chinese government can, you know, launch its own modernization uh, uh, campaign and its own upgrading programs such as um, Made in China 2025 uh, in subsequent years. So uh, here I, I cited three uh, elements for this Guangdong model. There's some others, but uh, for, the, for the sake of time, I, I, I don't want to uh, jump into too much details. 
Yeah, but this three is definitely uh, uh, some of the most uh, significant uh, feature of the model, as you mentioned, uh, as Guangdong opened up for the foreign capital and also the supply of low-cost labor. And uh, you also mentioned that it's not just in province, it's not just Guangdong province, but also the migrant workers from other inland provinces, which actually we will be talking more uh, later, especially in terms of the migrant workers, their experience, and also how they are um, uh, their experience in this uh, transformation of uh, Chinese economy and also the third uh, aspect you mentioned is this export processing and also uh, the accumulation of uh, foreign exchange as well so with uh, Guangdong model and uh, also with you uh, more than two decades of the uh, study of this uh, development, so you are actually uh, in chapter three analyzing the uh, one of the companies that's Taiyang. So I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about this and especially their business model and maybe also some of the different uh, decisions that the company make and um, maybe some of the organization or their uh, link uh, during the 1970s and also uh, 1994. Okay, uh, you know, Taiyang is a company uh, specialized in luggage and other made of uh, products. And this Taiyang is a small bird, I would say. Uh, uh, with, uh, because it's not, a, it's, not, it's not a big multinational uh, a corporation in Taiwan in in the mid seventies, Taiyang began as a trading company. Okay, uh, and 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 how how did Taiyang uh, do the trading uh, at that time? Uh, basically, it uh, organized the product uh, the, the production of the, the luggage and bags in Taiwan. And, and we know that the, the Taiwan is characterized by the medium and uh, a small sized uh, enterprises. But that kind of enterprises form a network. So Taiyang, uh, among others, in that time, they are good at making use of such production networks. So Taiyang's managers uh, has been quite skillful in organizing the local uh, scattered companies of small small scale uh, production factories in Taiwan, and uh, they 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 bought materials and they uh, put the materials into the the, the, the factories, and they also uh, uh, lease some machines to those companies. So this kind of operation is called OEM, original equipment uh, manufacturing. So that is the typical production. Uh, uh, pattern in Taiwan during those days. Okay, that is the uh, 70s uh, when Taiwan's economy was taken up. So this kind of uh, this kind of e ecosystem or this kind of uh, um, industrialization uh, uh, pattern uh, be became sort of exhausted in Taiwan in the in the mid and late eighties because of the rising labor cost and a more rigorous environmental regulation and the lack of land. So this it this becomes a push force, you know, a push force uh, pushing the local companies to go abroad. But where are they going? They have uh, you know a uh, largely they have two possible 
uh, candidates. One is the ASEAN countries, the southeastern countries, uh, like uh, Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia. Okay, the other region is China, and uh, comparatively speaking, at that time, the labor cost in China is even more uh, efficient, uh, costly efficient, and more, you know, disciplined. I would say, uh, in in that time, so. So much of the Taiwan, Taiwanese capital uh, rushed into China during the late 80s and the early 90s. All right, then, uh, so, so we can see uh, Taiyang went to China, but, uh, you know, the managers of Taiyang didn't know China very much. Actually, virtually nothing they, they know about China. They don't know the system of the Communist Party. They don't have any acquaintances in Guangdong. So how could they do? They step into Guangdong by way of Hong Kong, okay? In my book, I explain the process. The Taiyang managers, uh, you know, they have um, trading partners in, Guangdong, in, in, in Hong Kong, and they became uh, friends during that time. So with their help, with the Hong, Hong Kong friends' help, they went to China in the very beginning. So. They settled down in Dongguan, in the township in Dongguan. They, Taiyang rented a factory from a local state-owned enterprise because, as I said, in that time, the socialist system is, is kind of uh, in, in a stagnant condition. So there are a lot of, a lot of surplus uh, lands, factories, or labor uh, to be utilized. By foreign capital, so Taiwan rented a, a, a factory from local, so they began this kind of production. And also, at that time, China has no uh, production network. Okay, in Taiwan, you can do that kind of uh, pro- production organization because you can find all your components from the outsourced factories. Okay, but in China, you, you in the beginning, you can't. You, you you can't find any uh, supplier outside your com- your company so you have to integrate all the production steps into one unit so we call it the integrate vertically integrated factory so so taiyang you know established such a factory in china and and began to hire thousands of workers in this company so this is this is a big challenge to them because in Taiwan they didn't do that they didn't you know uh, manage manage a, a single factory uh, as large as like this one so so they 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 are doing this kind of operation and secondly they set up a company and nominally it's called a joint venture okay and in our system uh, when we say joint venture. Uh, say like we have a joint venture company, I spend 50% of the capital and you put in another 50%. So it's joint venture, okay? No matter it's in cash capital or in, uh, or you or you you, uh, you use your patent or production skills as a kind of uh, share. Okay, but in China, this is not the case at that time. This kind of joint venture company is a, is a fake one because the Chinese partner did not provide any cash capital or uh, any production knowledge. You know, it's it's like in in the Chinese concept, it's not just like a ganggu. 
it's it's not a real, you know, uh, the shareholder, you know, stakeholder. So in the in the actual operation, Taiyang is operated like a, a singly owned, singly owned company. Okay, so this is a very special institutional arrangement. I would I will try to explain this later in our conversation. So Taiyang uh, has to pay a larger uh, uh, management fees, or they, they nickname it a head tax, head tax, because this payment is you know based on the, the number of workers you hire. You hire one one thousand workers, you pay one thousand heads. Uh, Tax. Okay, so this is what Taiyang uh, did uh, since they went into China, and then it comes the year of nineteen ninety four, because in that year, uh, the, the center changed many policies. One is about the foreign uh, exchange policy. Okay, before that, uh, there is a dual track foreign exchange system which means that there's an official rate for foreign exchange. But in practice, people do not do business uh, based on the official exchange rate. They, they, they did it with the, the so-called black market rates. Okay, so that, that creates a, a kind of difference between official and uh, black market rates. So this is the, the difference becomes a rent for local officials to to seek, but but now you know the center canceled this dual track foreign exchange system. So the local officials, you know, if you stick to the government rules strictly, you you are not able to you are not entitled to seek such a difference right now. So you have to negotiate, renegotiate with the foreigners how they would pay the management fees. And in the case of Taiyang, its partner, its partner is a state-owned trading company. Its partner acts too much. So Taiyang decided to, you know, to leave a relationship with that state-owned trading company. It decided, this is quite a strategic decision, uh, as you mentioned in your question. They changed their business model, okay? But the Taiwan manager decided that we are no longer cooperating with such kind of the so-called corrupt officials. We want to uh, establish a genuinely sole, solely owned company. So Taiwan, uh, you know, search around the area and found a strip of land in a, in a, in, a, in a nearby village, and the, the village provides a land with quite uh, quite a reasonable price. So they. Uh, they strike a deal with the local uh, village cadres, and they pay some portion of management uh, fees to the village, and they also give some side payment to the village um, to the village cadres. Okay, so you can you can see the Taiyang company still has to pay extra payments to the local officials, but because of this ninety four policy change. They now they pay less. Now they pay less, and they also change the organization of their company. 
Yeah, and then thinking about '94 is such a, a change that、uh, for Taiyang to think strategically and also in terms of the. Negotiation, but also renegotiation for payments, for fees as well, and also how to cooperate with the、uh, Chinese state and officials. So, with Taiyang's case, as we see before '94 and after '94, the changes in place because of the policy change, and、uh, you mentioned that they actually uh, uh, have a. A larger factory than they have in Taiwan. They have a lot of、uh, the workers that they have. So、uh, with the workers now,、um, in your chapter five, you、uh, look into the workers' experience and especially how they are being positioned in this、uh, process of the、uh, Chinese state, the economic、uh, transformation as well. So I was wondering whether you can tell us more about these migrant workers and also how the Chinese. State understand and also create the migrant worker class and how they contribute to the economic growth and、uh, what their experience look like. Okay,、um, you know the migrant worker class is a, is a very special one in the world. Okay,、uh, we know that during the Mao era,、uh, China had a lot of surplus labor, but they couldn't.、Uh, Go out of the country countryside. They couldn't go, even. They couldn't not、uh, move out of the village without permission. Okay, everything needs a permission, and you you can go out of your、uh, village. You can move your household、uh, registration. You can get marriage without permissions from above. So that is the old Hukou system. And the state regulation system in in China, and this system has so many legacies are、uh, still lingering around in contemporary、uh, China. Okay, so before we can get a sense of what the migrant worker class do and how、uh, what this class being created by the state, we have understand the Fukou system. Okay, we have Fukou system in Taiwan. And、uh, Japan has a Fukou system there, but the Chinese Fukou system is totally different. It has basically it has, it has two origins. One is Chinese tradition, another one is from inherited from the Soviet Union's、uh, internal passport system, which means that you cannot migrate、uh, migrate domestically、uh, in your own homeland without government permission. Okay, so you have to you you need to apply for uh, uh uh for for the move, and you don't have any uh migration freedom in your country. And this kind of institutional design, uh, was uh was 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 transplanted from Soviet Union. Okay, so who so in this Hukou system, the people were divided into basically into two. Categories: One is agriculture and living in the countryside, and their occupation uh, are peasants or farmers. That is the Xiangzhong Hukou, the agriculture or、uh, Hukou、uh, status. The other one is the urban industrial、uh, working class. Okay, they live in the cities. They are、uh, they enjoy this the the urban 
social welfare, and which you know excluded the the countryside uh, uh, farmers. And so in China, if you are not a member of the the urban uh, citizenship, theoretically you could not work in this city. Okay, so how could how could uh, the Chinese government solve this problem in the very beginning? They invented the idea of zhen, a temporary residence uh, permit, which means that you apply, you say like you you are, you are a farmer from the, the inland uh, Sichuan uh, province, you want to get a job in Guangdong, then you 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 took train to Guangdong, you know, it may, it may take up uh, two days. Then you arrive in Guangdong, you arrive in Dongguan. And in, in and as a first step, you have to apply for a temporary uh, residence permit from the local government. Okay, with this uh, temporary permit, you can work in the in the coastal in a coastal village in a coastal foreign investor invested company. Okay, so by this way, China squeezed a lot of surplus labor from the inland since the, the early eighties up until the mid two thousands. Okay, for almost thirty years, China supplied a lot of labor into the coastal. Uh, uh, industrial laws. So this is the origin of the migrant worker class. Okay. So how how does this class contribute to China's economic growth? Simple, you know, they provided their cheap and disciplined uh, labor power, and uh, the, the local government uh, collected rents from them, and local government collects management management fees from the foreign capital, and the foreign capital utilize such cheap and uh, e- efficient labor to squeeze to, to squeeze out economic uh, surplus, which is profit. So this becomes a circulation, you know, a circulation of labor power. So so that's why this class of migrant worker, you know, was exploited uh, by the double by the double exploitation, which is by capital, foreign capital, and then including domestic capital, and also the state, because the state did not provide, you know, sufficient social welfare provisions to the to the to the migrants. So the state also can save a lot of money, and but you know the state also earn from uh, exchanges from this industry. So you can see. That is that is the mechanism of the exploitation. Yeah, and then thinking about this dual exploitation, one by the state uh, itself that uh, they did not provide sufficient social welfare or a support system, and also another exploitation is by the uh, capital as well to think about how they are uh, low cost labor and also efficient, and then so for the uh, companies to uh, accumulate uh, profits and revenue. So uh, I think one of the uh, things Dr. Wu mentioned is very important to think about how this migrant workers, their mobility is regulated, is regulated and also uh, 
uh, have to uh, apply uh, the uh, approval from the state. So they are not just, uh, um, uh, yes, that is a good place. I want to go and move there, start working. But as you mentioned, there are several different layers. First, the paperwork, the permits that have to uh uh, secure and also thinking about everything is uh, regulated and also approved by the state first before they can start working. And uh, so with that, and uh, but things start to change, um, and then especially from the uh, uh, 2000s. So in um, 2007, there is a global financial crisis. And I was wondering, can you tell us about how the Guangdong model is doing during this period of time? And uh, where um, does Taishan, Taiwanese people still stay there during this global financial crisis or they exit? from there. And you also, in this chapter, this is uh, chapter six to be specific, you also have a case study of two uh, companies. So can you share with us your uh, analysis in this chapter? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know that uh, the global financial crisis happened in 20, uh, 2007 and 2008 is a big blow to global economy. And, and China couldn't be exception, okay? And you know, you can imagine there's enormous uh, foreign foreign companies in coastal China. Uh, they are faced with the the you know insufficient orders from the Western markets. So without orders, you could not run the company. You 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 will you know run into the sh- uh, shortage of cash in a very in a very brief time. So we can see. Uh, during this external shock, global financial crisis, many Taiwanese and Hong Kong Hong Kongese companies are uh, just fled away. They shut, they shut up their, they shut down their companies uh, with uh, short notice, and even uh, overnight, you know, they just ran away. So this is a uh, top as exodus of Taishan. Taishan. Uh, the great escape from China, and that was the first wave of the exodus of Taiwanese capital from China uh, quite early uh, in the year of 2008 and 9. But we we don't think that that is the the single reason why the the Taiwanese capital and other, you know, the the same exporting, uh, export processing company uh, faced because there are some fundamental conditions are, are changing during that time. You know, the first one is that, as I said, uh, thirty years ago, twenty years ago, uh, the, the foreign capital can uh, can 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 get a lot of uh, labor supply. It's 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 like almost unlimited. You know, unlimited is a metaphor. Because how many you want, you can get them from the inland province. But uh, but because the the policy of you know China's I mean China's first policy, uh, one child policy, you know, has uh, brought out outcomes to the Chinese population situation. So the so-called uh, population dividend no longer existed. So the the, the local companies, you know. The foreigners begin to feel the lack 
you know, the insufficient supply of migrant labor uh, starting from mid-2000s, okay? So, you know, because of this shortage of migrant labor, you can expect the rising cost of labor. So that, that is the first condition that, the new condition that Paisang has to face. The second one is that, you know, uh, the local government uh, can use the, the agricultural lands and uh, they, they uh, ex- exploit the land from the, the, the farmers and uh, turn those lands into industrial use and the commercial use. And up, up, up until the mid-2000s, the local government has, had found that uh, the land supply is uh, running short, okay? They need, they, they, they need land for industrial develop, development, but they found that there's no sufficient supply of land. So some low-level or less uh, efficient companies, foreign company, are forced, you know, or urged by the local government to, uh, to move inland. And the local official told them that we need this land for, for more uh, profiled or more upscale of commercial use. So we want you to, to, to sell this land to the government and or to, to give back your lease. So this kind of land, uh, the tense land supply creates a, another uh, condition for, for Taishan. And all this, and also in addition, uh, the local government uh, now have a more rigorous regulation for environmental uh, protection. So all these factors combined uh, create a tremendous pressure for the traditional industry, you know, for the, for the low uh, added value industry. So they, they, they have to adjust to the new environment. So we, we can see in, uh, in, chapter, in chapter six, I, uh, I use two Taiwanese companies uh, for, for my case studies. Uh, one is, uh, one is the, the Smiles uh, Shoes Company, another one is Taishing. And these two companies are quite different in category and size and, uh, and the capital. You know, Smiles used to be a, a trading company in Taiwan about uh, before they, they before they came to uh, China. It, it's quite a, it, it's a quite a small uh, trading company in, in Taiwan. It's a little bit like Taiyang, okay? And when they moved to, to Guangdong, they established their own uh, factories and they began producing uh, uh, fashion shoes. And facing, you know, now they are facing the pressures from the local government during the, the uh, financial crisis and the afterwards. They decided to, to make some uh, uh, adjustments. The first one is that they established a core factory strategy. You know, they, they, they now uh, output, you know, outsource the production of shoes. They take order from uh, international brand uh, firms and they outsource the, the, the orders 
to the local uh, uh, shoes companies. And these local companies were managed by the Chinese themselves. But the, at the same time, they set up a core factory, okay? They produce the, the most, uh, the best quality shoes by themselves. And then they use this core uh, factory as a show window for foreign buyers, you know, this kind of, it's kind of, it's, it's like a, it's like a, like a is it exhibition, uh, uh, a hall, you know, I, 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 uh, I visited that company and they show me this core factory and it, it's pretty fancy because it is so, uh, so fashionable, uh, display of the shoes and, uh, quite modern facilities, but actually very rare, uh, uh, you know, products were really uh, produced in this core factory. That is Smiles. And, and Smiles, the managers of Smiles also told me that they face tremendous pressure from local competitors because the locals are learning the skills quite quickly so they can now compete for international customers. So they have to upgrade. So the core, the core factory strategy is it's a way they try to upgrade their company. So that is that is our smiles. And Taishin is a Taishin is a huge uh, shoemaker. Uh, uh, it produces about uh, uh, four thousand uh, four thousand million four hundred million shoes a year in the mid nineties. So you can imagine how big this company is. And and Taishin's readjustment strategy include uh, three three steps. You know, inland uh, relocation of the companies abroad and upgrading on site. And they they utilize all this uh, repertoire of of change. And they also set up a, a sales department, a sell a, a separate company, a selling their own shoes. You know, they try to establish their own brand in China. They do all these kind of adjustments, try to uh, try to face up the new environment. Yeah, as you mentioned, the uh, the global financial crisis might be just a general contest, but uh, uh, actually the Taiwanese business people, they face uh, multiple challenges. During this time in China, they have the uh, uh, the lack or insufficient supply of the workers, and also uh, land supply is also running short. And it's mentioned there's also increasingly rigorous environmental regulations. And uh, to sort of uh, counter these challenges, as you mentioned, these two companies have different strategies, and then it has to upgrade themselves for this uh, constant pressure from the government, but also from um, uh, the uh, local company, the local Chinese company, they become a, a stronger competitor. Um, so with this, and uh, thinking about the different, we talk about from the uh, 80s and the 90s, and then we talk about the global financial crisis. And now it's to think about um, in your uh Book, you have you mentioned this uh, term that is uh, the English translation is the rent seeking 
developmental state. In Chinese, it's Xunzu uh, Fajanxingguojia. So I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about this? And then, especially now, we have all the context and also different examples already. All right. I, I, I wish I could be like my advisor, Andrew Lance, and I can explain things, uh, compli complicated things in simple language. I, I'll, I'll try. Okay. You know, the, the first element of this rent-seeking development state is the institutional rent-seeking. Okay. Rent-seeking activities is, ubiqu is ubiquitous around the world. You can see everywhere in the world that people are are seeking rent. And what is rent? You know, economically speaking, we we should give it a technical definition. By rent we mean that you know the 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 companies, you know, or or company by using the government policy and they get extra uh, income, you know, ex uh, uh, extra income uh, due to government regulation. So this part of income is called rent. So we, we, we see in China that uh, government officials are seeking rent everywhere. This is quite uh, different from, from the, the, the countries uh, we are familiar with, say like in Taiwan or in, uh, in the US or Europe, uh, people are seeking rent, but the, the, the most people who are seeking rent are not officials. But in China, in the case of China, uh, the officials are seeking rents uh, uh, quite zealously, you know, because there's a wide space for them to to do so. So this is uh, this kind of rent seeking is is peculiar and uh, uh, and very special uh, for our case in, in in China. But how come it's called institutional? Because because these local officials you know, or even central officials, they seeking rent not only on the base of individuals. They do this also by way of collective organizations, which means that we officials or authorities as a in as, as a totality, as a in entirety, you know, we collect this rent from the company, from the industries. And we when we get this portion of rent, rent we can share. We can share this rent among us, you know. So take the uh, Nafu village, uh, for example. Nafu village, it's it, it's a village that the Taiyang company uh, set up its own uh, factory um, in in Guangdong. Now Taiyang pays you know uh, hundreds of thousands of, of U.S. dollars to the Nafu village, okay. But that payment is in, in the form of collectivity. They pay the rents to the village. Then the village can share, you know, the village cages can share parts of the income, the actual income uh, among themselves. And they also upward some portion of the rents to the higher level government officials, okay. So this kind of arrangement is uh, what I called institutional rent-seeking. And uh, the bottom line is rent-seeking uh, embodies exchange between power and the capital, between uh, power and, uh, and the business, okay? So what is 
What is more to this kind of land seeking is it's 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 government organized, it's institutionally organized. So I call it institutional land seeking. Um, but according to our uh, our past experience or according to the literature, any country uh, stuck in land seeking activities couldn't grow or couldn't grow rapidly because you know the whole society is is swamped by the rain seeking acti- activities and rain seeking activities is stopped as non productive because it, it couldn't produce anything you know, it just it, it, it's just a redistribution redistribution of incomes from one sector to another one so by definition rain seeking couldn't be productive but how come how come this kind of rain seeking in china could be are productive at some specific at, at some specific uh, stage in China. Okay, so I I made a very uh, uh, complicated argument for this uh, period of time, you know, because this kind of development uh, model lasted at least for thirty years in modern China. Okay, so my my argument to put it single, my argument is like this, you know, the the, the so-called uh, idle asset or officials, you know, they were already there. And if you don't marvel them to engage in business, they are in your way. You know, they are not. They are not only non-productive; they are against production. Okay, so this goes back to to, to earlier I mentioned about those efforts to persuade central and local officials to engage uh, in the business and the economic development. Okay, you have to mobilize these local people, these local officials are into the the economic activities. Okay, and you do this, you have to give them side payment. So you, you give them side payments, you create this kind of rent category and offer them this kind of benefits. So, so this kind of benefits can give incentive to these local officials to, to make them uh, mobilize for economic development. So this kind of situation is very peculiar, peculiar to China, and it, it only happened during that period. So we see this kind of, uh, this kind of a mechanism uh, uh, came into existence from the the, the early eighties up until mid uh, two thousand and tens, okay, for 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 thirty forty years. So this kind of model, I call it a uh, rent seeking developmental model uh, or rent seeking developmental state, and we know that. Uh, a number of states in East Asia, including including Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, Singapore, and Hong Kong, uh, all belong to developmental state. But uh, China makes the contrast to this category because China is the government is developmental, uh, to be sure, but it is also rent seeking, and and that kind of rent seeking happening in China is is not so rampant in other East Asian countries. Yeah, and now p- people are arguing that 
Vietnam could be a sequel to China. Yeah, so we have to to uh, to to delve into the case of Vietnam. But uh, for the moment, uh, Vietnam is not is out of scope. Yeah, to think about this rent-seeking development model, and specifically, as you mentioned, that uh, uh, in China and also for like. Uh, three decades to mobilize and also engage the Chinese officials and the locals into the economic activities. So to involve them by giving them some benefits and as incentive for this uh, model to work. So uh, with this and... um, now uh, we are in the year of 2023, and earlier when we are talking about the Guangdong models, its development or so, you mentioned that actually China have this uh, Made in China 2025 uh, vision. So uh, can you tell us more about this proposal that's uh, Made in China 2025, and how do uh other countries, for example, United States and also other Western uh, countries, respond to this industrial upgrading that's proposed by China? Okay. Uh, Made in China 2025 is a big push uh, upgrading project by Chinese government, uh, for sure. Okay. So Chinese government is, is very ambitious. You know, they, 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 they want to, uh, they try to catch up with the Western countries in, uh, in 10 uh, 20 years, and then and the Chinese leader pledged to to do this to accomplish such uh, a goal within uh, a few decades. Okay, that is the the, the basically the blueprint of the Made in China 2025. And when you check the item by item of the blueprint, you 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 find the very first uh, project for this Made in China 2025 is semiconductor. Okay. Nowadays, we are people are talking about trip war, and uh, Taiwan, United States, you know, Western Europe, and then Japan, and then China, of course, are all involved in this trip war. And China is doing very hard, you know, trying to upgrade its uh, its its chip making, and in this in this grand blueprint I I read it, it says that. China wants to uh, provide up to 70% of self-sufficiency of semiconductors by the year of 2025. But this project is not uh, poised to succeed because it's way too much uh, ambitious. And uh, it couldn't do so without the U.S. cooperation. Even with U.S. cooperation, uh, whether China can achieve this goal is dubious because semiconductor industry is very much different from other consumption goods, and also they are different from the national defense industry because we know that you know China is very good in producing uh, warships. You know they are they are they are making their own aircraft carrier. They are making missiles that could threat um, U.S. security. They can do all this, you know, uh, jet fighters. But, you know, the semiconductors has a, has a long, uh, long lead time, you know, and the learning curve is, is quite long. It's not impossible for China to achieve such level of self-sufficiency within uh, a, a few years. 
Okay. So, you know, even without Western export control, uh, the goal is dubious, as I say, is dubious. But now the, the U.S. and the, the West found that China is doing this. You know, China is making the big jump, upgrading efforts uh, through some, uh, some measures, you know, like uh, uh, intellectual property rights uh, infringement and uh, the pirating of, of of the IP or uh, stealing or some uh, fraudulent behavior. So the Western company couldn't uh, accept such behavior. Okay, and, and Taiwan too. They, uh, China um, poached a lot of talents from Taiwan and uh, also uh, uh, tried to steal, you know, know-how from Taiwan or, or from Taiwan Japan, South Korea, or Western countries. So the Western countries, you know, decided to contain the development of Chinese or high-tech development. That is the origin uh, of the resistance of the, the Western countries, you know, to explain why the Made in China 2025 met such uh, uh, huge obstacles from uh, other countries yeah and then especially to think about this uh as you mentioned this ambitious uh blueprint for their uh, industrial upgrading and then to have uh 70 percent of self-efficiency especially for the uh, chip making and semiconductors as well so um thinking about and also us and uh, the western country and also taiwan's among others um having this kind of response and to try to contain this uh, uh china's high-tech uh, development so uh, with this and uh, i guess you know 2025 is not too far away from now <laughs> so i guess we will uh, wait and see how yeah, only two years from now. So we will see how this um, uh, the the proposal, the blueprint, really uh, pan out or not, and how that uh, you know uh, uh, the different transition moment in the Chinese economic development. So uh, with that, so this is a very rich book and then uh, also covering different contexts from the uh, 70s and all the way to very recently. And uh, so uh, with uh, now the book is completed and uh, have two versions. We have the Chinese and English one. And I was wondering um, when you are writing this book, and any materials that uh, didn't really get the chance to be included in this book, or any of the things that you, um, any of the things that surprised you that you find really unexpected when you are doing research or writing this project. Well, so many, uh, so many materials are left out for in in this edition of the book. You know, uh, as Nipin said, I published the Chinese version four years ago. Then uh, this year, a new expanded edition, Chinese expanded edition, uh, came out in, in Taiwan. And the English edition was published in the end of last year. Um, in the new Chinese edition, uh, I, I, I added something uh, uh, special to this book. You know, I didn't change 
argument because uh, because I think the arguments are still stands firm, uh, given the under given given uh, the current circumstances. Uh, however, I miss out a lot of my field work uh, experience in my book because uh, the book is you know already too lengthy. Uh, it 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 has about four five hundred pages, so that uh, couldn't accommodate my my you know another chapter to explain my my field work experiences. And in addition, um, many field work experiences are not uh, you know suitable to be published uh, too early because you know. Because uh, many companies and uh, managers, they are still um, active uh, on the mainland or in Taiwan, and and uh, I have to protect the uh, interview, the interviewees, and that kind of the free work ethics I have to uh, stick to. Um, so I I didn't uh, include much of the information about my 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 informants um, most of them almost uh, everyone was encoded into a uh, a, a code name so i i don't cite their real name even the, the companies you know uh, the tyson company for those in the profession they can easily uh figure out which company i'm talking about but uh, still I, I i don't disclose their identity uh, so i you know the, the the materials I missed out uh, mostly is my field work experience and the 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 the, the, the real names and places uh, behind. Yeah, so I I make up uh, that uh, uh, that point. I I mean I I added uh, some pictures into the new expanded edition uh, of the Chinese uh, Chinese edition. You know I. I added about uh, 50 or 70 photos I took myself in a field or uh, when I was doing the interviews, my uh, research assistants or students uh, took the pictures. Um, so uh, that can uh, that can make up uh, to, to, to the lack of the sense of uh, the on the spot sense, I, I mean, we, that, 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 that set of uh, pictures can give you some sense that you are on the spot, that you, you, are, you are sure that the author and his team are really doing the work in the field. Okay, all the data are collected from, from the field, not from the other sources. That's kind of a guarantee and to give you a genuine, genuine feeling of the field work. Okay. And uh, the, the unexpected materials I encountered in the writing of this book, I there's something I would like to mention is that um, in the preparation of the English uh, edition, uh, although I have a collaborator in working the English edition, uh, my translator, and she is superb because she her her English are. Uh, Transliteration is so nice, you know, to make my book uh, readable and legible for the English readers. So I, I appreciate very much her help. Uh, but in the process, still, because this book is uh, 
contains so many jargon and uh, specialized uh, terms. So it, uh, we found it very difficult to to render it in the, into English in a terse way. Uh, I just make an example. Uh, in in my case, I mentioned the idea that the term of uh, this only in, in, in both terms, and each term has four Chinese characters, okay? But in there's only one word difference uh, for the two terms, 来料加工,进料加工, yeah. So although they look so much similar, they contain totally different uh, meanings for Taishang to, to operate with, okay? Because for the first one, it's, it, it, it doesn't have to apply for your own export uh, license. And for the second one, you have you can export your own products, and also you enjoy some portion of the uh, domestic sale in China. So we are talking about two kinds of you know organization and uh, uh, relationships with the local governments. So how could we translate the the the, the twins into English? That really, uh, you know, burned a lot of uh, brain cells for us. You know, in in in, uh, in the last moment, uh, we coined the term uh, 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 for each for each one, gong and gong. One is the one is uh, shipped, and another one is imported, and we remain the, the the other you know English words in the in in the two. In the two sets of terms. So this is one of the most unexpected materials I encountered in the writing. Yeah, as you mentioned that uh, now uh, in the new edition of the Chinese version, uh, you include some more field work experience and also for the photos, I would definitely check them out and just uh, curious to to sort of, I, as I you mentioned, like yeah. Yeah, yeah, that would be great too. Could, because to really get a sense about the field work, and also to really want to sort of get to know more about your decades long, actually more than twenty five decades of research uh, with these uh, different uh, Taiwanese businessmen, and also their changing strategy, changing organization models as well. And uh, yeah, and also you mentioned the the translation. And uh, sometimes need to uh, uh, be creative and also try to get the message across uh, in different uh, linguistic uh, medium as well. So uh, with that, I will say uh, the translator and also you, Dr. Wu, did a very good job that uh, now we have an English edition. And... Uh, um, so with that, um, we talk about the book and talk about behind the scene uh, about the process of writing this book. So what about the future? So we are just curious about what are you working on right now or what will be your next project? Um, I'm Currently, I'm working on two projects. The first one is kind of a sequel to Rival Partners. Um, we know that uh, I, my story stopped uh, around the mid uh, 2010s, you know, and I, I wrote up the book in uh, 2018 and published it in in, in, in Chinese on the next year. So 
uh, I, 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 I discuss a little about the U.S.-China rivalry, uh, strategic, uh, strategic competition, and I, I also predict, I also predict that uh, uh, the Made in China 2025 wouldn't be successful uh, due to the Western uh, export control and uh, due to the lack of skills, accumulated skills. Uh, for the Chinese themselves. So uh, since then, so many things happened uh, uh, afterwards. So I am now uh, trying to uh, organize all these uh, materials uh, up and uh, uh, to write a new book. That is about Taiwan's economic and political development in the future amid the US-China rivalry. And I hope to uh, wrap up this book manuscript within two years. I hope so. And the second project I'm going on has been uh, conducting for 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 about eight years. I'm collecting uh, and compiling uh, contentious politics data in Taiwan, uh, which is uh, the collective protest events data. Uh, because you know that Taiwan's uh, civil society is uh, is 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 a major uh, element in pushing democratization in Taiwan. It's been very important, and so is the social movement sector. So, so far, there's not a comprehensive database for the past three decades of contentious politics. So, I'm now doing this. And I hope to finish this project within four or five years. Then I can, you know, go on and write a book about the geopolitical changes and its relationship with contentious politics in Taiwan and also in theory. All right. So both sounds great project, and then we are. I'm so happy to hear that there is a, a sequel or related work uh, coming up in the future. And so uh, we're looking forward to reading more of your work. And with that said, I want to thank you, Dr. Wu, for being on the show today. I really enjoy our conversation. Thank you, Li Bing. Thank you for having me. And I also want to thank you, our audience, for staying with us till the end. I hope everybody is taking good care. See you next time. Goodbye.